if the vehicle requires the human to still be behind the steering wheel with their eyes on the road and hands on the wheel, it is not self-driving. It is not certainly not full self-driving. It's, you know, it's, it's a driver assist system. Hi, I'm Esther. And I'm Sean. I write about AI news here at Tech Target in Massachusetts. And I edit Esther's stories. We're here to talk with tech experts about everything AI and ChatGPT. And don't forget about Google Bard. Whether it's who's ahead in the generative AI race, the metaverse, digital twins, or even the latest in autonomous vehicles, we've got it covered. Right, Sean? Yep, we've got it covered. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Targeting AI podcast. Today, we are speaking to Sam Abel-Samad, Principal Research Analyst at GuideHouse Insight. GuideHouse is an intelligence advisory firm. Sam covers automated driving, mobility services, telematics, connectivity, cybersecurity, and advanced propulsion systems. Sam is a trained mechanical engineer and worked as an engineer for 17 years. He then worked as an automotive journalist before going into product and technology communications for a few automakers, and then stepping into his role as an analyst. Sam and I first connected nearly two years ago when I wrote about autonomous vehicles and different players in the market. Thank you, Sam, for joining us on today's show. My pleasure. Happy to be here with you. So, Sam, uh, when everyone thinks of self-driving cars, the most common one that comes to mind is Tesla, right? Because it's so ubiquitous. And we'll talk about Tesla later in the show. But, uh, but, but what would you say makes a car truly autonomous? And one more added question as part of this. And how do autonomous vehicles work? And we'll talk about safety problems associated with them later. But what are the main benefits of autonomous vehicles uh, in the short and long term? So, yeah, there's a lot there to, to unpack. First of all, um, you know, I actually prefer not to use the word autonomous because autonomous implies that, you know, that the vehicle is capable of just going off and doing whatever it wants to do, which ideally is not the case. Um, ideally, it should do what you tell it to do. Um, and so uh, within the industry, we actually prefer the word automated, uh, automated driving and automated vehicles. Um, and an, an automated vehicle uh, is one that where a truly, you know, a highly automated, what we call a highly automated vehicle uh, would be a vehicle where you would give the vehicle a destination um, and then it navigates and drives to that destination without any human supervision. Uh, so that could be something like a robo taxi where a passenger hails a ride uh, using an app similar to what you would do with uh, Uber or Lyft or even a, a cab. Uh, you tell it where you want to go, you get in, and it drives you there and then drops you off. Um, could also be delivery vehicles. Uh, companies like um, Neuro are developing automated delivery vehicles, but also some of the uh, some of the other automated driving companies like Cruise and Waymo um, and, and others are emotional are also um, using... Um, vehicles for doing automated deliveries. Uh, the the uh, way that these vehicles work is um, they use a variety of sensors that are installed on the vehicle that are looking outward, looking at the environment around the vehicle. Um, they also use maps, obviously, to to navigate. Uh, needs to the vehicle needs to know you know where the streets are and and to be able to develop a route to the destination that you've requested. Uh, and there's 
you can break down the automated driving system um, in, into four main components. I mean, you can, it, in reality, breaks down in much, much finer uh, detail. But, but to, to generally understand how it works, there's four main components or four main steps in the process. The first step is what we call sensing and perception. So that's taking the sensor data, which can be cameras, can be radar, the LIDAR, uh, ultrasonic sensors, uh, infrared, thermal imaging sensors, um, and whatever else anybody can think of that, as I said, you know, look at the environment around the vehicle, try to, uh, try to, and then tries to understand that environment, make sense of that environment. So it'll do things like taking the camera data and try to do machine vision, apply machine vision to that, to say, you know, there's a, there's a car, there's a dog, there's a pedestrian, there's a cyclist, there's a bus, uh, and try to classify everything in the environment and understand where all of those objects in the environment around the car are, just as we do as human drivers. You know, we, we are constantly, hopefully, if you're doing it right, you're constantly looking around, monitoring your environment and trying to track everything that's there. The next step is prediction. Once you have figured out what is around you, then you have to predict what are all these other road users going to do in the next three to five seconds. Um, and you need to do that to in, before you can determine what you are going to do. Again, this is something that we inherently do as human drivers, uh, but it actually turns out to be a really difficult problem for software because what we refer, what we often refer to as artificial intelligence, is not actually intelligent. It's really more sophisticated pattern matching, um, and it's uh, software has a really hard time with prediction, especially with predicting what pedestrians are going to do. Then, once you've predicted what all all these other objects around you are going to do, then you have to plan a path through that environment that is going to get you safely from where you are to where you want to be. Uh, or at least a path, you know, for the next few seconds. And then it's constantly updating that every, every um, tenth of a second or so. Uh, and then finally, once you've planned your path, then you have control where uh, the computer sends signals to the various actuators to control your brakes, your steering, uh, and your, your propulsion system to actually make the car go, stop, and steer, um, and hopefully get you to that destination in one piece. Yeah, that's kind of, that's pretty interesting. Um, Just to do a little bit of a step back. I mean, when we first spoke, you, you um, when we spoke last time, you said you, you've always been interested in cars, right? What would you say is one of the big, biggest changes you've seen since you started as a mechanical engineer to now? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, even though I have a mechanical engineering degree, much of my career over the past 30 plus years has actually been focused on electronic controls and software. Um, and I, I started off working on anti-lock brake systems, uh, which, were, you know, which are kind of a very early precursor to what is being done today. Um, the, you know, the systems that we had then, you know, the, the computers that we had available to, to use to control things like ABS and later traction control and stability control were quite primitive compared to what we have today in terms of the amount of computing power that was available. And the software was also very primitive. Um, we, you know, back in, in 1990, when I started, uh, you know, we were writing um, basically assembly code, you know, machine language code uh, that was very, very efficient, very small uh, because the, the chips were expensive. Um, and 
you know, they, they didn't have a lot of power. So we had to do everything in the most efficient way possible today. You know, and, and also the other thing is all of these, all the systems we were working on in those days tended to work in isolation from each other. So the ABS didn't talk to what the engine was doing. You know, it didn't talk to, um, things like the turn signals, you know, it had, we had four wheel speed sensors and a brake switch as, as our inputs, uh, to figure out, you know, okay, is, is, can the system, you know, be operational right now? Uh, and what should it be doing? So it was, it was quite primitive today, you know, it has evolved to the stage where, you know, a, a modern vehicle may have upwards of a hundred computers in the vehicle operating all kinds of different things, you know, from the brakes, the, the powertrain, um, you know, if you have um, things like sequential turn signals on your car, there's a computer that operates that tells those LEDs when to fire in sequence. You know, it's a small, low power computer, but there's a computer dedicated to doing just that job. You know, or if you have heated seats in your car, there's a little ECU that controls that control, you know, monitors the temperature and make sure it turns it off if it gets too hot, things like that. Um, and what we're seeing now is a transition towards consolidating all of these distributed computers around the vehicle into a few higher powered computers and um, using much more sophisticated software um, that allows us to uh, make it easier to do things like actually update the software. When I started, um, the, the, so the software for the ABS system in the, in the 1990s was basically essentially burned into the chip. You know, when, when it was manufactured, uh, the chip was manufactured with the code that ran the the um, the ABS permanently encoded in there. So once it was put in a vehicle, you could never update that software un unless you actually took out the chip and replaced the chip. Um, today, we have vehicles that have over-the-air software updates. Uh, and so um, the, the they use flash memory, uh, something that didn't exist in 1990. Uh, or at least not in any way that it was usable in a vehicle. And um, so now you can continuously be updating software in the vehicles. And this is something that, uh, you know, we started seeing in the mid 2000s with some of the early connectivity systems like GM's OnStar, their telematics systems um, to update those, uh, those things. But, um, you know, starting in 2012, when Tesla introduced the Model S, they actually made it possible to update all of the systems in the vehicle. And so now this is becoming an expectation in new vehicles. So it, the, the whole business model has changed from, you know, it, for a hundred years, we manufacturers would deliver, would design, develop, build and sell a vehicle and then forget about it, except for selling some service parts over its lifespan. And they would move on to developing the next generation of that vehicle. They would never do updates on an existing vehicle. But that's no longer the case. Now we're continuously updating software in the vehicles and, and shipping that out over the air. Uh, and that allows for the creation of new features to fix bugs, fix security issues, um, and add new capabilities to the vehicles long after the vehicle has been put, you know, years after the vehicle's been put into service, um, right up until the time that it reaches it, the vehicle hardware reaches its end of life. So that's, that's probably the single biggest change in this, this whole concept of what we call now call the software defined vehicle. 
That's pretty cool. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with that with the Tesla, with the Tesla being so uh, popular, you know, it's now becoming pretty common to have this over the air stuff. Um, probably expected from other manufacturers of EVs uh, and regular cars as well, right? But anyway, what are for now? What are some of the, uh, the the best or most viable enterprise applications for automated vehicles or self-driving vehicles? Yeah, so uh, uh, there's probably two main areas you know that we'll see um, some of the initial, or we're actually already seeing some initial deployments of automated vehicles. Um, one is robo taxis, uh, you know, and if you live in certain cities today, if you live in San Francisco or Phoenix, uh, or Austin, Texas, um, you can, or if you're in, particularly in China and in, in several cities in China, um, consumers can get an app and you can hail a ride in a robo taxi. So, um, you can sign up for cruise or Waymo in San Francisco, um, or in Phoenix or in Austin and, uh, use that app just like you would use an Uber or Lyft app uh, to request a ride during their, their hours of service. And a car will show up with nobody in there, no driver in there. And you get in the back seat, close the door, put on your seatbelt, and then hit start ride on the app. And the car will drive you to your destination that you requested. Uh, and that's pretty amazing. I've, I've experienced this in a number of different cities now with the different companies. I was just in Austin a few weeks ago and took a ride in a cruise, uh, robo taxi. I've done it in San Francisco. Uh, and it's, 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 it's pretty, pretty wild. Um, the other, uh, area is with automated trucking, uh, long haul trucking. And one of the things, uh, around, automated driving uh, is this idea of what, what we call the operational design domain. So basically it refers to where, under what conditions can the system operate? Because one of the things that all of the systems that are out there today, uh, they all have limitations. They, they cannot function uh, under all conditions. You know, they may be limited to certain roads, certain weather conditions, certain times of day. Um, and for driving around a city, cities are very complicated environments. To drive in, uh, which is one of the reasons why mo many of these companies are focusing on cities because they figure if, if we can make the car work in this really complex environment, then it should be able to work in most places. Um, but there's also um, long haul trucking, you know, to deliver freight. And that's a very different ODD or design domain, um, you know, because you're talking generally relatively straight roads. Um, you don't have intersections, you don't have pedestrians and cyclists, uh, and it's long, you know, driving, you know, sometimes hundreds of miles at a time. And, uh, there's a real issue with, uh, trucking with a shortage of drivers. Um, and there's also a lot of safety challenges and drivers, human drivers are limited in how many hours a day they're allowed to drive. And so, uh, one of the, the areas they're trying to address with automation is long haul trucking. So having a truck that can drive itself from one depot to another, you know, just off the highway, um, you know, for hundreds of miles without any oversight. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a number of companies, particularly, uh, in Texas doing a lot of testing, but also in, in Nevada and, and elsewhere, uh, Aurora innovation, Waymo, uh, Kodiak, um, and, and several others that are, are testing automated long haul trucks, um, which will be an, another interesting area where there's a, a potential for a real business.
I, I know, like uh, Sean mentioned, we, we are going to talk about, uh, I guess, safety later on. But, like, would you say of all the ones that you've mentioned, with obviously robo-taxis, um, you have the long-haul truck, trucking. Um, you mentioned, obviously, that being an issue with shortage of drivers. Uh, the drivers are still in the car, though, with the long-haul trucking, right? I just want to clarify that. Today they are, yes, because okay. they're still they're still in a testing and, and validation phase and, and R&D phase, really, in, in many cases. Uh, so there are safety operators in the truck, uh, just as there are in, in many of the robo-taxis. You know, uh, not, not all of the robo-taxis actually operate fully driverlessly. Most of them at this stage still have safety operators in there. And their, their role is to monitor, be ready to take control at any time uh, if there's an issue. Uh, and in many cases, um, they, may, they will actually have two people in the vehicle. Uh, so you have one whose sole purpose, their sole role is to sit there with their hands next to the steering wheel, keeping an eye on the road and being ready to grab the steering wheel at any moment or hit the brakes at any moment um, if, there, if there's any sign of an issue. Uh, and then the other, uh, the other person who's often in the vehicle, their role is just to monitor the data. And if there's anything unusual or unexpected that happens, um, you know, they can make a note of that, capture, uh, some of the data, um, and have, have that recorded so that once the, the vehicle gets back to its depot, uh, where, where they base these vehicles, you know, one of the things they do with all of these test vehicles is they have huge banks of hard drives in the back. Uh, and they're recording many terabytes a day of data from all of these different sensors. So they're recording all the LIDAR sensors, all the radar, all the cameras, um, capturing all of that information. And then if anything out of the ordinary or anything unexpected happens, either with a, a new type of scenario that they haven't seen before uh, or something in the software goes wrong, they have that captured. And they have they've recorded when that happened, and then when they get when the, the vehicle, whether it's a truck or a robo taxi, gets back to its its depot, they offload all of that data into a data center, and anything that was was marked, you know, bookmarked as something they want to look at, they can take that, they can feed that back into a simulation system, and replay it, and um, rerun the software against that same scenario over and over and over again, and they add it to their test suite. Uh, and then as they make changes to the software, they can run it back against the same data. Because one of the, one of the big challenges with trying to develop this in the real world is the real world is infinitely variable. Mm -hmm. you, know, it, you can have any combination of weather, lighting, uh, road conditions, debris on the road, reactions of other drivers around you, pedestrians, as I said. And so trying to replicate you know, any, any scenario that happens during testing, trying to make that exact same scenario happen again is nearly impossible. So capturing all the data of what the sensors saw when that originally happened, you can use that in a simulation and then you can make changes to your software and run it against the exact same data and see if it behaves properly this time. Uh, and that's a critical part of trying to validate and ensure the safety of these systems. Sean was sending me a little bit of something before we started about the idea of what role does privacy data, uh, data privacy plays in something like this? Because you were talking about capturing data, right? Mm -hmm. So how does that, how does that play out? That is a big question that is at this point still unanswered. 
Um, we don't have any regulations around that. You know, um, you know, whether it's an automated vehicle or our personal vehicles, we increasingly have sensors on the outside of our vehicles that are looking out. You know, most most new cars built in recent years um, have cameras on them. You know, they certainly everything built you know in the last half decade has at the very least a backup camera. Um, most new cars built in the last seven or eight years also have at least one forward facing camera. In many cases, they have multiple cameras that are constantly looking out, uh, you know, as part of driver assist systems and then eventually as automated driving systems. Um, and for these test vehicles for automated driving, you know, we're capturing way more data, much higher resolution. And, uh, what, you know, the, the privacy, you know, if you're, I guess, you know, if you are out in public, if you're on the road, um, I think it's, uh, you know, you don't, you don't really, at the, once you're in public, you, you can't really have any serious expectation of privacy anyway. Um, but you know, these vehicles are capturing a lot of data, you know, as they're driving down the road, if you're sitting out on your front porch, you know, and one of these vehicles drives by, yeah, it's going to see you. It's going to, it's going to capture you. Um, you know, to date, you know, there, that hasn't had any real impact. Uh, but there are some issues around this. For example, um, you know, there are, there have been, uh, recent reports of police agencies, um, you know, wanting to subpoena data from some of these vehicles. Um, you know, ca- you know, ca- data, you know, camera data that's been captured to, you know, if they, if there's a suspected crime, uh, you know, and, the, you know, going to these companies and saying, hey, you know, at this at this location, at this time, you know, if you had any vehicles that were driving by this area, uh, we want uh, we want the, the video from those vehicles. Um, and that, you know, is potentially a, a, a big problem. Uh, and this is this is a policy issue that we are going to have to address um, sooner rather than later. You know, unfortunately, you know, Regulators are, you know, politicians. Most politicians, uh, certainly in the U.S., more so than in Europe. In Europe, they're much more concerned about data privacy up to a point. Um, you know, here in the U.S., there's been much less effort at uh, at trying to uh, ensure data privacy uh, for regular people. And that's that's an issue that we're going to have to address um, soon with all of these automated vehicles hitting the streets. Regulation has always been a big problem when it comes to anything mm-hmm. um, <laughs> in the U.S. Um, would you say that we are where you thought we would be compared to 10 or 20 years ago when it comes to automated vehicles? Um, I would say for me personally, yeah, we're probably about where I thought we would be. I would say, you know, for a lot of people, there were, there were a lot of expectations. If you go back to, you know, 2013, 14, 15 timeframe, there was a lot of hype around automated driving. Uh, there, you know, there was a lot of people making huge claims that, yeah, you know, we're going to, we're all going to be riding around in robo taxis in 2018, 2019. And obviously that isn't happening yet. We're, we're nowhere close to that. Um, and 
you know, but I, I've always been, you know, as, as an, as an engineer, I've always been a bit more skeptical about, you know, cause I've worked on, you know, certainly not these exact systems, but, um, safety critical systems for, you know, a long time. And I understand how hard of, how hard of a problem this actually is. You know, there's, you know, there's this idea of a, a 90, 10 rule, uh, in engineering projects, you know, the first 90% of the project, you know, takes you 10% of the effort. Um, and the last 10% takes you 90% of the effort, you know, and I think in the case of automated driving systems, it's, it's probably more like, you know, 95, five, or even 99, one, um, you know, and because there is so much going on with the software, the software is so complex and you've got so many sensors and actuators on these vehicles, ensuring that they are operating correctly is an incredibly difficult challenge. Uh, and, you know, there were, you know, in the mid 2010s, you know, there was some, some big progress that was made on machine vision systems, on uh, neural nets and things like that, that, um, you know, everybody thought, oh, this is the solution. This is going to get us there. And it turned out that while a lot of progress was made, there were there was a lot of limitations that they still didn't understand of those kinds of systems. And so we're still they're still trying to overcome a lot of those those challenges. And, you know, I think it's going to be you know closer to 2030 before, you know, we see a lot of automated vehicles running in a lot of places. And even then, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, what's, what's sometimes referred to as a level five automated vehicle, the Society of Automotive Engineers has developed a, uh, a classification system for vehicle automation that goes from level zero to level five. Level zero is a vehicle that has no automation on it at all. It's completely manual. Uh, level one is, is a system uh, that has some basic uh, assistive systems like cruise control, adaptive cruise control, lane keeping assist, blind spot monitoring. Uh, level two starts to combine some of those systems where you can use uh, you know, adaptive cruise control and lane centering together in uh, similar to what you have today with systems like Tesla's autopilot and, and even their full self-driving for that matter, uh, along with um, you know, uh, systems like GM Super Cruise and Ford's Blue Cruise. Uh, but those systems still require the driver to be attentive, paying attention, um, in some cases, even having their hands on the steering wheel, like with Tesla systems, you have to have your hands on the wheel. Um, you have to have your eyes on the road and, and be ready to be fully in control at any moment. Um, and then, you know, so that's what we refer to sometimes as a, a hands-off, eyes-on, brain-on system. And then as you get up to level four, level four is the first level where you can actually go fully brain off. Uh, so level three, you can go eyes off, but you still have to be awake uh, and attentive. So it's hands off, eyes off, brain on, and be ready to take control when the system reaches the limits of its capability. At level four, that's where you're talking really automated, uh, but within some limited operating domain. You know, So it might be only on certain streets or certain times of the day, uh, or certain, you know, certain locations. Um, and that, um, you know, that's, that's a, that's what we see today is level four systems like Waymo and cruise and motional and others. And then level five basically is the same thing, but without any limits on where it can operate or when it can operate. 
And that's, that's a vehicle that you can just tell it to go, you know, and it can operate anywhere, anytime. Level five is something that, you know, back in 2016, Elon Musk said, you know, they'd have level five on Tesla's in about two years. Uh, so 2018. And that, that was a lie then. And it's still a lie today. I don't think we are actually likely to get level five vehicles and can operate under all, any and all conditions for maybe ever, but certainly not probably until the late 2030s at the earliest. Um, you know, but what we will have is vehicles that can operate in certain defined conditions like automated trucking or urban robo taxis or delivery vehicles. Okay, so, so no flying cars soon, right? No flying cars soon? Uh, no. And, you know, frankly, you know, if it flies, it's actually not a car. It's an aircraft. Well, so. actually, I did want to touch briefly on, on other kinds of automated vehicles, you know, like, like ferries, boats, planes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, late, I don't know, not right now, but um, I, I've got this qu- question about, um, all right, so you have Waymo and Cruise doing autonomous taxis, robotox taxis to some extent. You have other testing going on, and there's, you know, there, there's some accidents. There's even been some fatalities. There's also uh, protesters, uh, some protesters putting tra- uh, traffic cones on top of the cars. Then there's been critics like uh, Esther wrote about the, the prominent Tesla critic who rode with it with the Tesla investor and so on. So the protesters are saying that the cars do all kinds of, you know, automated cars to block buses, block emergency vehicles, dangerous to human and animals. And so, so we'd like to hear your thoughts on, on this kind of opposition to these uh, partially self or completely self-driving vehicles. And what kind of middle ground can the, the manufacturers find with the, the, the critics and the protesters? Yeah, so there's you know there's a number of different issues in there. Um, you know, you referred to uh, to Dan O'Dowd. Um, he's a, you know prominent. He was the founder of um, not Green Hills, uh, Wind River, I think, Wind River Software. Uh, and he's he's got a something called Project Dawn, and he's been a very vocal critic of, of Tesla, as have I. You know, I think you know Tesla. You know, is a company that's done amazing things for. Um, making electric vehicles, you know, uh, appealing to consumers and really popularizing electric vehicles. Um, and they've done a great job on a lot of areas like over-the-air updates and charging infrastructure. But I think that they have been utterly reckless and irresponsible in their approach to automated driving by putting experimental software in the hands of average consumers that are not trained in how to properly test and evaluate this kind of safety critical software. Um, and also, uh, you know, they, you know, the, the way they brand their, their, their features like autopilot and full self-driving, you know, if the vehicle requires the human to still be behind the steering wheel with their eyes on the road and hands on the wheel, it is not self-driving. It is not certainly not full self-driving. It's, you know, it's, it's a driver assist system. And to call it full self-driving, you know, the, the way you, the branding that you use for any of these kinds of technologies is really, really important because it creates an implication in the consumer's mind of what the capabilities are. Calling something self-driving implies that you don't have to pay attention. And that is absolutely not the truth. You, you know, to, and you read the instructions before you engage full self-driving, it says you have to keep your hands on the wheel and eyes on the road. 
And, you know, Tesla does a poor job of ensuring that, uh, you know, I think they've been irresponsible in that. And, you know, their approach to trying to do it on the cheap using cameras only, not using other sensors, I think is also irresponsible, um, particularly with, with consumer vehicles. But even, you know, looking at the other companies like Cruise and Waymo and Zooks and, and Motional and others that are using multiple types of sensors, I mean, part of the reason why they're using multiple kinds of sensors is to, you know, they, they need the, what's re, the idea of redundancy and diversity. You know, traditionally in automotive systems, you know, because cost has always been a concern, you know, for any types of features that we put in the vehicle, we've traditionally not had redundancy in there. Um, the redundancy has been the human driver. Uh, you know, for example, you know, when I worked on ABS systems, if we had a wheel speed sensor fail and the ABS couldn't function, we turn on a light and this is what's known as a, a fail safe system. So in a fail safe system, the system has to be able to detect a problem and then indicate to the driver, yeah, I've detected an issue and the system can't function right now. So you're in full control. So you turn on the light and the driver knows, okay, my ABS isn't working. So I have to be more careful about how I modulate the brakes or, you know, your, your power steering fails, you know, the, you, the driver can still steer the vehicle. You just have to put more effort into turning the wheel but you can still steer and control the vehicle. That's a fail safe system. What for automated systems where, you know, there is no expectation of a human taking over, or there may not even be a human in the vehicle. Like for example, I referred earlier to Neuro. They make these smaller automated delivery vehicles. They are not designed to carry people. There is no one in that vehicle and it can't accommodate passengers. It's only for carrying packages and, uh, groceries and things like that. Uh, you ha those those kinds of systems have to be what's known as fail operational. So first they have to detect if there's a failure, you know, if a sensor goes bad, and then you um, if, it, if it then it has to have a backup system that can still control the vehicle even if it's in a you know a reduced capability until it can get to a safe place and stop. Uh, and what Tesla has done, and this is one of one of the many criticisms that O'Dowd and, and I also have of Tesla, is they're trying to rely on just a single type of sensor, uh, cameras, and that's not adequate. You can't get fail operational capability with that because, for example, you know, you're driving down the road, um, you know, if a bird decides that it needs to relieve itself and plops right on your windshield, you know, right where, right where the camera is, um, or, you know, you're driving in wintertime and you get salt spray on your windshield that, that the wind, the wind windshield wipers can't get off. Um, you know, then those cameras are obscured and the system becomes inoperative, but there's no, there's no redundant system. There's no backup system. Also, you know, um, you know, cameras are great for doing image recognition, you know, because you have a very rich set of data that the camera sees and you can, you, you can use the camera data to, um, to classify the objects that the camera sees, uh, and, you know, rec you know, try to discriminate between pedestrians and other vehicles or animals. But, um, if, you know, if you are driving directly into towards the sun in the early morning or in the evening, 
um, you know, then oftentimes that camera, the forward looking camera can be completely blinded. And I've experienced this with some of the current systems that are on the market, uh, like like Nissan's ProPilot Assist, um, you know, where the system can't function if you're driving down the highway directly into the sun, you know, early in the morning. Um, you know, it says, sorry, you know, I, the camera can't see, so this system can't function right now. Um, so this is why you also have other types of sensors. This is why you also use radar, why you use LIDAR. Because they have each of these has different capabilities and different strengths and weaknesses, and they have some overlap, but they can provide that redundancy that you need to operate safely. Um, be, and and part of why you you need all this is because I talked earlier, software doesn't work the same way as the human brain does. Um, it it does not perceive um, the world the way our brain does. You know, a lot of proponents of camera only systems talk about, well, you know, humans drive with just their eyes. So, you know, all your eyes, your eyes are just a pair of cameras, you know, feeding into your computer, which is your brain. Um, but it's not that simple. That's a radically oversimplistic view of the way that, that we as human drivers function. Uh, we, um, as, as humans, um, you know, our brain processes information very differently. We also use more than our eyes. We use our ears. We use our sense of touch, uh, you know, the, the feedback in the steering wheel, the feedback, you know, through our backside, you know, as we're turning. Um, you know, so we, we have these other senses that we also use. And um, like I said, our, our, our brain, you know, I mean, from the time we're infants, you know, we human, human infants can recognize and distinguish a human face from other, other things. Um, because just because of the way our brains function and software and computers do not function in the same way as a human brain. They can do a lot of things incredibly fast, way faster than a human can, but they do it in a very different way. And it's just, it's simply not um, reliable enough today. Um, so you do have to use these other inputs to try to create, you know, that, that work together to try to create uh, an understanding if you will, of the, the world around the vehicle. What about these, um, what's it called? Because you're talking about, okay, Tesla, there's kind of their own problem. Um, but also uh, with Waymo and Cruise, uh, I don't know if you saw the protest on Twitter. Oh, yeah, the cones. The cones. Yeah. On top of the cars. Yeah. Like, obviously, <laughs> speaking of humans being different from the automated vehicles, there's, there's a way that humans have found a way to get around them. Um, what do you think is their main grief, so to speak, the, these protesters? And is there a way to get around it so that they're more accepted or more receptive to this, uh, to these uh, vehicles? Yeah. So the, you know, the, the, the big complaint, you know, and this is especially true in San Francisco, where currently there's more of these vehicles than anywhere else, probably anywhere in the world. Um, you know, you've got, uh, you know, at least a couple of hundred cruise vehicles, a couple of hundred Waymo vehicles, you've got Zooks vehicles and, and others in San Francisco. And because these systems are not yet functioning at the level that a human driver functions at, uh, they, you know, they sometimes will just stop in the middle of a road or they encounter situations that they don't understand. And, you know, the, I talked about, you know, the, the software not functioning the same way as humans. It's one of the problems is it's not, it's not as adaptive as the human brain. Um, you know, when, when we encounter a road blockage, 
uh, you know, we look, okay, we see there's, there's roadblocks here. You know, there's a parade happening and there's a roadblock there and there's a police officer, you know, guiding, you know, giving traffic directions said, you know, okay, you have to go that way, you know, or go that way. Um, we know what to do. Um, we, we can understand, you know, we see somebody signaling with their hands and we, we can understand that nonverbal communications, or even if the officer, you know, or whoever's guiding traffic walks up and, and talks to you, you know, we have other ways of, of communicating and getting data. Um, and so far these automated vehicles do not, um, you know, Waymo and Cruise both have microphones on the outside of their vehicle that are designed to detect, for example, sirens from emergency vehicles. And there's, you know, when they detect that, they're supposed to pull over to a safe space and, and stop. And recently I was in San Francisco and, and rode in a Waymo uh, vehicle and, and that, that happened. There was a fire truck that was going by with its sirens uh, and the vehicle pulled over. Uh, and waited for the the fire truck to pass, and then and then continued on its way. Um, so some of that is there, some of it works, but it's still not adaptable enough in terms of how these vehicles interact with uh, with humans or things that they that they weren't programmed to expect. Um, and so, or, and sometimes you know they just get confused and they stop, and they'll stop in the middle of the street. Uh, there's been a couple of different incidents, you know, with cruise vehicles where a cluster of eight or 10 or 12 of them will stop on one block and completely block traffic, you know. Um, and so um, people in San Francisco, whether it's, you know, regular residents of the city or um, emergency uh, responders or the um, the municipal transit agency, they're you know, they're getting frustrated because these vehicles, you know, one of the, one of the reasons for one of the, the original reasons for moving to automated vehicles is to try to reduce traffic congestion. You know, if you can get people to use shared automated vehicles and get personal vehicles off the road, um, you can potentially move more people with fewer vehicles. And so you should be able to have less congestion. But what we're seeing right now is actually the opposite. Because these vehicles are still not mature enough, they get into situations that they don't know what to do, and then they're blocking traffic uh, and actually making making the situation worse instead of better. And so um, this is why you have you know the MTA and 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 police and fire agencies you know, going to the California Public Utilities Commission and say, we don't want you to give a permit for these companies to expand their services because right now with the number of vehicles they have, they're already causing problems. And for, you know, for residents of the city, you know, we've seen them start to do things like when a vehicle is sitting there stopped uh, for whatever reason, they'll go up and put a traffic cone on the hood of that vehicle which for some reason is apparently causing the vehicle to get confused and then it doesn't move. Um, and so it just, it gets essentially disabled without actually damaging the vehicle. Um, and I, I understand the frustration of those people. Uh, and they, they are legitimately frustrated because, you know, I think in some ways these, these companies are rushing to get these get these systems uh, commercially deployed, because they've been working on this for so long that 
their investors are, you know, starting to get impatient. They want to start generating revenue, um, you know, because in- investors in the automated driving space have already pulled back significantly. And quite a few companies have already gone out of business because they couldn't raise more money. And um, so those that still have some money are trying to get to a point where they can start generating significant revenue so they can fund themselves uh, because they know they're not going to be able to raise much more capital. Um, and so they are putting putting vehicles that really aren't ready for prime time on the streets, you know, where instead, you know, they should be continuing to test, probably continuing to test with safety drivers on board rather than driving. Um, you know, if, if, if these vehicles were still running with safety drivers, you know, the human, you know, instead, instead of the vehicle getting stuck, the human could just, you know, disengage the system and drive it back to the depot and figure out what, what's going wrong. Uh, but because in, in many of these cases where they're getting stuck, these are vehicles that don't have anybody on board. And that's, that's a real issue. Um, because, you know, they're, they are remote, they are being remotely monitored and the they also have systems to enable somebody to remotely you know provide directions to the vehicle and tell it okay you know you need to go here but that for whatever reason that's not always working there are times when the vehicle gets stuck and the remote controller can't get it to move um and if there's nobody there to to step into the vehicle and take control then uh then that's a problem and i i think you know the the companies are they want to have the driverless vehicles out there to try to build trust with consumers to say, look, these things are running without drivers and, you know, they're not getting into crashes. Um, but they're also, you know, they're also having other issues, which is working against them. So I think they, from a trust building perspective, they would probably be better off to slow down and keep more safety operators in the vehicles. Um, but, you know, that kind of works against that, um, you know, and certainly from a business standpoint, if you still have to have somebody in the vehicle, that adds a lot of cost. Uh, so they're, you know, they've got multiple conflicting needs uh, going on that's driving this and, and causing the, the residents of San Francisco to get really irritated. I'd like to switch gears a little bit, no pun intended, and ask you, what do you drive, Sam? <laughs> Um, I, I am in the fortunate position of, I get to drive a lot of different vehicles from different manufacturers to evaluate them, you know, as part of my job to, to learn about the technologies that are in the vehicles and, and to review them and and talk about them. Uh, but, um, the personal vehicles we have in our garage, um, you know, uh, we have a a 2017 Honda Civic that, uh, is my wife's main car that she drives and I have a 1990 Mazda Miata. So, so as wow. someone who, who talks about connected and automated vehicles all the time, um, I have, I drive something that is completely unautomated, completely manual and totally disconnected. And, uh, so that, that allows well, me to decompress from my so job. I have a, quick, a follow-up question about that. I, I drive a Subaru WRX, uh, six speed stick shift. Any chance that could be automated, uh, anytime soon? <laughs> the, the vehicle you have or, yes, or the the w- I have. no it's no. i don't want it automated i yeah. like driving uh i like a stick shift i like you know good amount of horsepower i mean the question for me is so, when is the wrx going to go electric you know yeah 
Um, so, you know, I mean, Subaru is a smaller company. You know, they're moving a little more slowly. They have one electric vehicle in the market today, the Solterra. Um, you know, I think they'll they'll probably be a little while before something like the WRX. No, know, there's an STI uh, under development, an electric STI, I think. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, Jeep, for example, was recently demoing, um, you know, a, a fully automated version of the Grand Cherokee. You know, so you can, you know, automated off-road driving. Uh, so, you know, I think, you know, we will see various levels of automation, you know, coming to a lot of vehicles over the next decade. And this has been one of the interesting transitions because full automation like robo-taxis is taking so much longer to develop. What we're seeing is automakers um, taking some of the technologies, some of the things they've learned from developing fully automated systems bringing that down to driver assist systems to make those systems more capable uh, and starting to utilize some of those sensors. So we've got vehicles on the road today with LIDAR and imaging radar um, that are you know more capable than they were several years ago and should hopefully be safer as well. So I talked about safety and, and by the way, we hope that uh, sports cars stick around for a while. Do you foresee a future when automated vehicles can be pretty safe and can cut down on, because in, in the human driven automobile world, we have carnage on the roads, mm-hmm. okay? We have, we have crashes that kill tens of thousands of people a year. I call them crashes because most of them are avoidable, um, not accidents. So I think in my view, one of the promises of automated vehicles is in some distant future, it could be a century away, is reducing that carnage. Um, so getting back to everyday safety, when do you see or do you see any point where we can have safe automated vehicles for, for the most part, uh, you know, for commercial and personal use? Yeah, I think, I think we will uh, in the coming years start to see some uh, improvements in safety based on the technology we've been developing for automated driving. Uh, I think that, you know, we, we're, we will start to see the benefits of that over the next several years. Um, recently, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration issued a, uh, a rulemaking, uh, notice of pro- proposed rulemaking um, to enhance automated or automatic emergency braking systems because the systems that are in the market today are really not very good. Most of them are based just on camera. Um, they don't really work at nighttime. They don't work at higher speeds. Um, they, you know, they're, they're very limited in their capability. And so they want to enhance, en- enhance those systems. And so I think, you know, one of the ways that we're going, that that's going to happen is by taking some of the technology from automated driving and bringing that into mainstream vehicles. And some of that's already happening. As I mentioned, you know, LIDAR and imaging radar, infrared sensors, um, so, you know, I think even without fully automated vehicles, we will get uh, some benefits there that, that should have a significant impact on safety. You mentioned, you know, tens of thousands of people dying every year, and that is unacceptable. Um, but we also need um, some perspective on that, uh, some, a little bit of context. Um, you know, driving is something that we do a lot of. Um, you know, and you often hear, you know, the misquoted statistic of 94% of crashes are caused by human error. And that's only partially true. Human error is a factor. And it's usually the last factor in a, in a chain of events that leads to a crash. 
Um, you know, and by the time the human has made the error, it's usually too late for them to do anything anyway. You, you need to fix the problem further upstream. Um, the reality is, you know, yes, 42,000 people a year, you know, died in the last couple of years on American roads, but we, we drive 3.2 trillion miles a year. That's T trillion with a T in the United States. Um, and we have about six and a half million crashes, which is about one crash every half a million miles. You know, if the average person drives 15,000 miles a year, your probability of being in a crash is about once every 30 years. So, you know, given that, you know, most people will crash once every 30 years, the, the reality is we're actually pretty good at this. Yes, we are a, a, a major factor in most crashes, but most of the time we don't make mistakes that cause crashes. Most of the time we are able to avoid them. The vast majority of the time we are able to avoid them. And the reason I bring this up is that means that there's actually a, an incredibly high bar for a fully automated system to be better than a human driver. We have not reached that bar yet. I think eventually we will. I think there, there's a time at some point in the indeterminate future when we will get there. But I think between now and then, um, I think that we can take a lot of what has been learned in the last decade and we can make a significant dent in that 40,000 fatalities a year. Uh, I mean, we've made enormous progress in the last 50, 60 years with safety. Um, the, the fatality rate, you know, per hundred million miles driven has dropped by, you know, almost 80%, over, you know, since the 1960s. Um, and a lot of that is due to vehicles themselves being safer. You know, we've got, we've got people using seatbelts, we've got airbags, vehicle structures are better. Um, and you know, the next step is active safety, you know, to avoid the crash. You know, most of that is, you know, reducing the chance of injury or death in a crash. But now the next step is active safety to reduce the number of crashes themselves. So moving further and further up the chain. And so I think this is where, where this technology will, will benefit us. Even, even when we are still as humans, the primary drivers, we will be augmented by these sensors that give a, you know, let us know that can help intervene before we get to the stage where the human error can become a factor. Um, this has been such a good podcast. I'm so good. That, I'm so glad. And I'm so grateful that you came and you spoke with us. Um, I just wondered if you can ask kind of like a final question. You've spoken a little bit about some of the regulatory measures, uh, but can you just speak maybe just quickly about what regulatory measures we're seeing when it comes to automated vehicles and AI? Uh, so far, there's actually been shockingly little. Um, <laughs> you know, in in, a, in some states like California, uh, you know, the companies that are testing this technology, you know, have to pay a, a nominal fee to get a permit to test on the roads, and they have to submit some data about you know crashes and disengagements. Uh, you know, when when a human safety operator took over, but that's pretty trivial. Um, you know, they have, so far have not been really required to share any of their test data, you know, um, and there's nothing at a federal level. And most states, you know, in a lot of states like Nevada and, 
and Arizona and uh, Texas, which is why a lot of the testing is happening there. There's almost nothing, you know, in terms of reporting requirements. Um, you know, I think that the the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has been negligent in not doing more to require sharing of data uh, from these vehicles, uh, from these test vehicles, to better understand, to build an understanding of how these things function and what they can potentially monitor. You know, I think ultimately, at a minimum, what we need is the electronic equivalent of what we have to do as humans to get a driver's license. You know, as, as a human, you go into the DMV, first thing you do is you take a vision test, prove you can see and you can recognize what different traffic signals are. You know, and then you have to go out on the road and prove that you understand the rules of the road and know the basics of how to operate a vehicle. And you know, frankly, in the U.S., we are you know, woefully um, un, you know, weak in that area as well. You know, for example, in, in most of Europe, you have to be 18 to get a driver's license, and the training requirements are much more stringent. Um, you know, here it's you know, pretty trivial. Um, but I think we need at, at a bare minimum, the equivalent of that for automated vehicles, you need some regulations about, you know, that, that, uh, demonstrate that a vehicle, you know, can see, you know, the, uh, the equivalent of a vision test, you know, the sensors can see in a wide variety of conditions and can properly recognize, uh, the things that they need to recognize and then that they can operate safely, you know, a driver, a road test. So a vision test, you know, uh, you know, written test and a road test uh, as at a bare minimum. And we don't even have that today. So I think that's that's a starting point. But I think we probably need much more than that. But, you know, we don't have time to get into all of that today. Thanks, Sam. That was great. You've forgotten more than most experts know about autonomous vehicles. And uh, it's uh, unbelievable how much uh, ground you cover in your uh, it's, it's been It's been over 15 years since I had my first ride in an automated vehicle. At CES in 2008, I rode in the, uh, the Chevy Tahoe that won the DARPA Urban Challenge. Um, and uh, I've ridden in many, many different vehicles over the last 15 years and, and talked to a lot of people. And, uh, and you're still a, lot, here a lot of people a lot smarter than me. And you're still here to speak with us, like you're. That's right. You yeah. haven't gotten hurt. Um, yeah. Did you have to wear a helmet in some of those vehicles, or no? I don't know. No, no, didn't no. have to wear a helmet or anything. No. But I, anyway, I, the so only cool. time I've had to wear a helmet is in human-driven vehicles. <laughs> right. Um, that, that would be the the that road race you're talking about, probably the cross the northern African road race there, um, or any kind of rally races. Yeah. But anyway, for our listeners. If you want to check out Sam's research on autonomous, uh, automated vehicles, please go to guidehouse.com. And also check out Esther's stories on autonomous or automated vehicles on Tech Target's news website. Thanks for joining us and talk to you next year, probably, we hope. <laughs> All right. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Please remember to share on your favorite social media platform and leave a review. For more on today's topic, please check out the Tech Target news website. 